You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Nick Correa. It's Thursday, April 16th, 2020. We have our managing editor, Ed Harrison, standing by with Roger Hurst for their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over today's market news. Starting off with some price action, U.S. equities were muted today, but inched higher towards the close. The Dow and the S&P started the day in the red, but finished the day with modest gains. Nothing momentous. It was the Nasdaq that had the glory today, up 1.66%. Amazon today hit a record high of 24.50, ending 4.36% up on the day, while United Airlines was the biggest loser of the day, down 11.46%. A horrible day for the company. This after an alarming letter from its CEO yesterday to all United Airlines employees warning them that, quote, travel demand is essentially zero and shows no sign of improving in the near term and that they expect demand to remain suppressed for the remainder of 2020. In other news, the quarantine is making it impossible for some companies to pay off their debts. Neiman Marcus yesterday missed key coupon payments on several of its loans, with investor Marble Ridge Capital pushing for a default. Meanwhile, other corporate borrowers are struggling to meet their obligations. Live Nation Entertainment and Marriott International asked their lenders to waive key covenants so that they could make good on the loan. And yields on bonds in the restaurant sector continue to spike. We're seeing Domino's and Burger King struggle to constrain the cost of financing. But it's not just the large corporations under funding pressure. Small businesses as well have been hit hard and it may even get worse. As the $349 billion that Congress set aside for small businesses has run out. It's only been two weeks since the Paycheck Protection Program was launched, but already all of the funding has been claimed. The Small Business Administration cannot accept new applications until Congress approves more funding. The economic pain will likely continue as the shutdowns continue to roll over worldwide. Britain extended its lockdown by three weeks today. Japan officially declared a state of emergency. And in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered the shutdown to continue until at least May 15th. This happened as the deaths in New York today soared. But this GMI figure accounts for all of the probable deaths, those who likely died of coronavirus but were never confirmed, who were not included in previous tallies. Now let's send it over to Ed and Roger for their analysis. Ed? Thanks, Nick. This is Ed Harrison here for Real Vision in uh, Washington, D.C., I should say. I was thinking I was going to say New York. And I'm talking to Roger Hurst, who's over in our U.K. office. Roger, good to talk to you. Good to see you again, Ed. How's it going? It's going well. And, you know, we're doing this at the close of the European markets uh, because uh, you're over there in Europe and uh, things are still going on in the U.S. I think Europe closed uh, pretty well and actually it's doing pretty well in the U.S. I mean, it's just above, um, you know, uh, above zero for most of the markets. But markets are not selling off on really bad news today. That suggests that good things are happening uh, from a Fed liquidity perspective. How do you think about this? I mean, what's on your mind today? Well, I think Amazon and Netflix is happening is, is kind of what it was. In that, I mean, if you look at the US um, here, this is 4.30 UK time, so it's 11.30 your time. And the Amazon's again at a new all-time high. It's up just under 50% from the lows a few weeks ago. 
And you know, we can have that argument about, well, you know, they're, they're obviously the concentration and they're winning. But ultimately, that's one of the main reasons why we're seeing the US markets perform well, Netflix doing well, and, and some of the other tech stocks. Um, and you can see that the US, and, and now moving over to the S&P, but we're seeing the S&P um, outperform Europe once more. So this is really a story about the US, and it's a story about US equities. And it's a story about concentration, that Mike Green concept of concentration, the Amazons, the Netflix of the world, doing incredibly well. In Europe, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. There's nothing that really stands out apart from when we had the lows today on the markets in the same way that in the US, banks, because the bank's results are performing pretty badly, and banks are still key to uh, economic um, strength or weakness. And if they're weak, despite the tech stocks doing well, it's not sending a good message about the overall economy. You know, interestingly, in what you said is the, the concept that even though you can make some differentiation within the economy about different part sectors, there's a bifurcation that's not only about uh, how well things are doing in the real economy. What I'm getting is an underlying sense that you're saying that it has to do with uh, price discovery with liquidity that is 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 that you know the dollars at the center of the of the global world currencies and the fed is pumping money into the economy i think price discovery is one of the key elements that we're all kind of battling with at the moment in terms of which assets are freely floating when the us is not many i mean clearly um, investment grades not high yield is not uh, the bond market. Although it's not explicitly, implicitly there is the yield curve cap that people will think coming from QE infinity, and there is also that kind of feeling, the insinuation that the equity market might well get bid if things go horribly wrong. So there's not real price discovery there in Europe. The same, we've got the bond markets and the corporate bond markets, which are um, explicitly bid by the central banks, and in Japan, pretty much everything. So it comes back to where is the true price discovery in the global markets, global financial assets? And I think there's only really two. One is the FX markets in general, and the other one is going to be things like emerging market bonds. And I think that brings us on to some of the reasons why I think the U.S. is doing well and why the dollar is doing well. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, uh, let me just frame it, because what I'm thinking is, is you're saying that uh, uh, the, the Fed is bidding up assets in particular, and, uh, and so that's putting a floor under assets in an artificial way. So you're not getting any price discovery. And then the question becomes, if you really want to know where the connect between the real economy is and where the financial economy is, then look for the assets and the asset classes where there is price discovery and FX and EM bonds are places that you can find that. Yeah, I think, you know, for people who have seen Real Vision over the years, um, this kind of goes to a lot of what Brent Johnson says on the milkshake theory, but it also goes to what Mike Green said quite recently on concentration. And I think if you sort of really, if I'm going to really, really simplify this now, which is, I think that the more that the Fed does, and I said this yesterday, the more that the Fed does, the more attractive the U.S. becomes. So you think about what's happened over the last month. The Fed's balance sheet has expanded by $1.8 trillion, and when we get the updated numbers today, it'll probably be $2.2 trillion, something like that. In that same time, the ECB has done $500 billion. So the euro should be up a lot versus the dollar, but it's not. And it kind of goes to, a very again, simplifying it, is that if I said to you, you've got two choices to invest in. One is... U.S. assets, maybe U.S. bonds, but U.S. equities, or emerging market assets in an environment where we know that the real economy is absolutely destroyed. Well, as an investor, you're going to go, I'll buy what the Fed's buying. So as a foreign investor, you'll look at that and think, 
I'll buy what the Fed's buying as well. So the more that the Fed does, the more liquidity they provide, which speculatively you can see every time that you get a, a release of a new um, package, 2.3 trillion last week, dollar sells off. But that's the speculative move, which is a sort of fair move. But then the real economy move kicks in, which is if I think that all assets in the US are backed by the Fed with unlimited QE, I'll buy US assets. I don't want to buy emerging markets because emerging markets can't back their own economies. They're going to go into a sort of lockdown, which is worse than we see in developed markets. And the end users, the end buyers of most of the products from emerging markets, well, we're all sitting in our homes doing nothing. Right. So I'm not going to buy those. So perversely, the more the Fed does, the more the dollar becomes attractive. And I think this is one of the reasons why we keep on seeing this. It looks like the dollar wants to sell off, but then it rallies, in particular against emerging market effects. And I think this is where we look, if we believe that the real economy is truly under duress, it's emerging market effects where we'll see the release valve and much weaker currencies going forward, and emerging market bonds as well. U.S. equities, as we see with Amazon, can keep on going up. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thesis. And let me uh, run something by you, because I'm thinking about this thesis from my perspective here in the U.S., and that is is uh, what, what I've been calling the Lehman Principle. And that's the concept that the Fed, even though they say that they have an unlimited QE, they do have a line in the sand that they're not going to go and cross. That is, is that, you know, we know that when push comes to shove, the Fed will underpin everything. But as we saw in the 2007-2008 crisis, at some point in time, they tried to push back. And, and when they did push back, it was with Lehman Brothers. Originally, you know, we saw they, they, they bailed out uh, Bear Stearns, they bailed out Fannie and Freddie. And then when it came to bailing out Lehman, they were like, you know, I think we're going we're gonna, to uh, take a pass. And then all hell broke loose, and they were forced to bail out Lehman, AIG, and, and so on and so forth. So my sense is, is, is that there's a potential that they're going to play the same game here, and it's somewhere in the high-yield equity uh, leverage loan universe that they're going to draw the line, and there's going to be an event risk as a result of that. And so you know, when you talk about the bifurcation between price discovery in emerging markets and in FX versus other markets like uh, U.S. equities. I'm thinking of it as well in the same way that there's price discovery potentially in leveraged loans or you know lower grade uh, U.S. Uh, high yield or in a small business, uh, you know the the Russell 2000 or the small cap index. What do you think about that? I think it's in some ways, I think the magnitude, the scale of what we've been seeing means that they have to start drawing some lines in the sand. And I think that's right. I think what they I think what they did with junk was they didn't actually mean to say we're gonna buy all junk. It meant we're gonna buy Ford and those really kind of <laughs> iconic companies right. that you know, car workers, you know, the manufacturing sector, the whole thing that you know the Trump administration has kind of put its flag on, really. That it's not going to let that go. So that's why those elements of junk market they will want to protect because it's such an iconic part. And I'd say that if you can extrapolate this out slightly further, because I think within the US there has to be some lines in the sand. I think also, in some ways, the world is sort of looking at the Fed bailing out the world. So this is the swap lines in place, the repo facilities for foreign entities. So foreign um, international and monetary authorities can come in and swap their treasuries and get dollars. But you can't see the Fed bailing out the rest of the world's corporates, particularly when some of those are going to be Chinese corporates, mm -hmm. when mom and pop stores on your street corners are going under. 
That just can't happen. The line in the sand will be forced upon them by public requirements. And I think that is where we will see a kind of, you know, the risk. And then this this extension of that is that it comes back to the dollar, why I still think this is strong for the dollar. And again, I'm not really someone who has the sort of tribal view on the dollar being stronger or being weaker. I'm just thinking this is my how it work, um, plays out. People often say, well, OK, if they withdraw those swap lines, then you're going to see emerging market defaults. And that's true. And they say, well, if you have a default, you wipe out the demand for dollars. Now, if everybody in the world defaulted on the same day, that would be true. But the way to think about those international defaults, and I'm thinking country defaults as much as corporate defaults, emerging markets, is that think about this like a clearinghouse. When you've got clearinghouses, they have margin on futures. There's 2 or 3% in normal, boring, low volatility conditions. Vol picks up, margin goes to 7%. Someone defaults, it goes to 10%. So if one country defaults, and countries don't like to default, I know Argentina is the heavyweight champion of defaults, but Greece was kicking and screaming, trying not to default. That's the normal way countries are. So countries won't want to default, but one country will. Margin will go up. That's demand for dollars. Another country will default. They'll create more demand for dollars. And this will happen. The dollar will go up and up and up. And then eventually you'll get a cluster of defaults, which might be the final squeeze in the dollar, which reached the peak and then comes back. But that's how I see this probably playing out again. This is why EMFX could be the release valve for the real economy, the global real economy playing this game versus the US, where price discovery is hard, support is incredible, and that's going to suck, as I say, capital in away from those emerging markets the more that the Fed does. So it's the irony is the more the Fed produces liquidity, the more the dollar might go up from that. Again, that's the milkshake theory. It's the concentration theory. But I think that's how it plays out. That's interesting, you know, because uh, when you were talking about the daisy chain there from a default perspective, immediately I thought back to the European sovereign debt crisis. A lot of people don't know this, but when the European sovereign debt crisis happened, the trigger was uh, Dubai World. Dubai World's default is, is what led people to reassess their thinking about uh, about sovereign debt. And then immediately they went to the Eurozone, and that's when it all uh, fell apart. Greece fell apart, and then it went on down the line to include Ireland, you know, Spain, and eventually they, uh, you know, all, uh, we'll do everything it takes, came when when Italy got into the, into the fray. I want to also think about your dollar uh, thesis, because I talked to Raul about this, and, you know, the way that I'm thinking about it is, is that, you know, uh, when it takes off, it takes off in a big way. You know, when you think about fat tails as an example, that that's really what what happens. It becomes existential on some level. So let's say you get a default or you get two, then the rush for dollars starts to begin, and then suddenly it just feeds upon itself. And you know, lines in the sand or are, are, are levels that you thought uh, were unbreachable for the dollar uh, become uh, go even higher and higher. Do you think that we're going to see that sort of crisis if you? will in the FX market play out? In some ways, we sort of have seen it a little bit with places like Turkey, um, Argentina, obviously, and, and, uh, and a couple of others. And what's been very interesting in this last, in the last actually a couple of years, so not just in the last few weeks, is that normally what we used to always see was sort of EMFX week, and then you might see G7 and some of the G7 offshoots. But what, we, what we've been seeing recently is certain parts of the bad end of EMFX, then commodity currencies, including some of those in developed markets, particularly the Aussie dollar. And then you start shifting through the safer EMFX, and then eventually into, well, actually, you come into the safer part of G7, which actually go the other way. And I think that's the way this is going to play out again, is that you look at the, the unpleasant end of that 
that line of FX markets. And you can see recently, I think it was yesterday, at one point, the Aussie dollar was down 2%, the New Zealand dollars were down 2.4%. I think it's those currencies which, again, will give us the big clues. Um, we obviously had that spike low in the Aussie dollar, New Zealand dollar, et cetera, dollar, dollar going up about three weeks ago. Looks like we're rolling over. That's where I think we should focus. And I think what you said was absolutely right, which is, it's not if, if the dollar strengthens from here very, very slowly. So we get to 104 on the dollar index, which is mainly euro. But let's say we got to 104 by the end of the year. No one will care. But it's a disorderly move. It's that move which goes parabolic, which we've seen in some EMFX already. That's the bit that we should worry about, because that's the disorderly move which creates the, the real run on dollars or demand for dollars that creates a, the daisy chain effect, the domino effect all the way through. So absolutely, I think that's, that's how we should be looking at that. And that's how we can play it. So I would still be short EMFX in general versus the mm. dollar. But pick those which we know are basket cases already. And I think unless you believe that the world is going to come up back online in the next few weeks, the commodity currencies, particularly things like the RAND, nearly made a new low high versus high dollar low RAND recently, as in a couple of days ago. Those are the sort of places that plays this out. You know, you mentioned the euro and all that, and you were talking about DXY being very euro heavy. I think before we even started this conversation, we were talking very briefly before we got online about the euro. And, you know, the big question is, uh, in the euro, in terms of euro risk, uh, is it uh, in an exigent circumstance a German euro or is it an Italian euro? That is, is that, you know, when, when push comes to shove, is the euro weak or is it strong? Uh, what, what, how do you un unbox that? It's it's kind of, it's um it's such a hard question to ask because if you look at the eurozone crisis, it wasn't a euro crisis because the euro didn't know which way to go. If Italy leaves and Italy leaves on its own, the euro's stronger because of Germany. Um, if the whole thing disintegrates, again, which way do you play that? What's your debt denominated in? Is it Deutschmarks or is it Lira? Well, obviously, it depended on kind of which bonds you had. Um, I would think that, and, and it's, it's a tough one. Firstly, I, th I, I think that if the ECB starts to do lots and lots of liquidity, it actually looks like they're doing um, corona bonds and backstopping um, the eurozone itself. Maybe that's when the euro goes higher, because actually you feel safer about investing in, in Europe, because you go, OK, they've come together, they've come together, the euro goes up. If it looks like it's going to break down, you probably see, and the first thing would be a sell-up, and you go, hang on a minute, ex-Italy or ex-Spain, it's Germany. Because I think that's the way it goes, is that 27 countries, you will see the allegedly weak ones leave, therefore you strengthen the core. How do you play that? I think the only way you can play that is by buying volatility, because I have no idea whether we should be at two or one versus the dollar based on this. But I think we'll get there very quickly. So you can buy volatility, because although FX volatility has gone up, FX volatility is still remarkably low on a historical basis. Very interesting. You know, um, we, we, another to topic that we were talking about, and I think that you uh, broached it in the beginning, right when we were talking, is about uh, uh, yield curve control. So we, when we first started talking about FX, you were talking about the dollar and how uh, yield curve control ostensibly it gives the United States uh, people an understanding that the Fed will do whatever it takes to keep the, the markets uh, sorted out. And that's positive for the dollar. I'm thinking of it from a U.S. domestic perspective, and that's in terms of the banks, because 
basically you have a, a zero rate, which by and large is going to be pegged there for a long time. And you have the U.S. curve, which is now up to 60, 70 basis points at the 10-year level. If you have yield curve control, the only thing that it could do is flatten the curve, bring rates down at the 10-year level. And that's very negative in terms of net interest margin, margins for banks. And this is exactly at the time that banks are writing down uh, tons of, uh, of uh, credit. And ultimately, I think that that's negative for economic outcomes. I mean, the way I'm looking at it from a real economy perspective is the U.S. is becoming Japan. Even if you think that you're going to have a deep recession and not a depression, what you, the, the, the policies that you put in place in order to make that happen are very negative for credit growth over the long term. Yeah, and I, I guess the question back and one of the things that seems to be kind of gaining momentum is, is that in the U.S., um, the mortgage industry looks um, like it's going to be under duress. So we've just seen that, as you pointed out, we've seen the numbers coming out from some of the big U.S. banks, and they weren't pretty. And the provisions are huge for the future because you know Q2 is going to be far, far more interesting than Q1. But when you look at some of the, the sort of companies which focus on mortgages, I think it's Western Mortgage Capital Corporation or something mm -hmm. like that. It's price collapsed and it's hardly recovered anything at all. This is going to be where the real kind of issues kick in. Is it's the mortgages? It's the real world. It's the real economy. It's not the Amazons. I mean, why is Amazon going up? Well, Amazon's going up not just because it's taking market share. It's going up because it's that concentration story. But the real economy, whether it be as we say, you know, the oil price, which we've seen collapse, or mortgages, or the companies that provide mortgages collapse. That's I think where the pain is at, and I think that's right with the banks. The banks have been under duress. Yield curve control is death by a thousand cuts. It has been already. Look at Europe. I mean, European banks are on their last legs, and there's going to be a, a swathe of nationalizations across oh, yeah. Europe. There has to be. And it's simply because I, you know, I used to always say with Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Bank, 600 billion of, um, of, you know, of debt that it's got, or, you know, it's liabilities, and it's got a market cap of 10 billion, maybe 20 billion, depending, you know, it moves that quickly. If you just say 5% non-performing loans, well, that's 30 billion, 30 billion versus 10 billion. In a normal common or garden recession, it's gone. And I'm, I'm not really picking out Deutsche Bank, it's just that's how we all looked at it when we were there. But that's the same for nearly all the big banks across Europe. But you have to pick out Deutsche Bank. You know, you, the reason that you have to pick out Deutsche Bank is because uh, if you want to think about it from a positive perspective, in the same way that we're thinking about the United States, Deutsche Bank is the bank that will create a positive outcome from a we'll do whatever it takes perspective. Because as soon as the Germans uh, realize that, you know, we need to nationalize Deutsche Bank, they'll say to the Italians and the, and the, and the Spanish, you know what? You guys can nationalize your banks, too, because, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with nationalizing banks. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And once that happens, then suddenly people will realize, you know, there is a safety net just like there is in the United States, that they're going to bail these companies out. Uh, maybe we should bid these assets. I think it's absolutely right. I think the game for a lot of peripheral Europe is to hang on for dear life to the point where the likes of some of these German banks, and not just Deutsche Bank, but pretty much the whole the sort of listed sector, ends up having to go cap in hand to the government. The government will have to go, OK, fair cop, governor, and, and then they get nationalized, at which point that's that's it. The whole of the sort of, you know, the unification of Europe has to come from that point. And you can probably then say, OK, we can write that down and we can move on because we've unified that concept of Europe. But until then, 
you can see that actually Europe is still pulling itself apart because of the way that Europe, these multiple numbers of countries with differing requirements, has failed to come together in a meaningful way. Even behind Christine Lagarde, however much people might have negative or positive views there, she's there to try and bring together, knock their heads together. But these, this was supposed to take two years, and it now needs to happen now, basically. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you said something before when you were talking about Amazon and the banks that I thought was interesting. Here's how I'm thinking about it. Okay, so you were saying that uh, the banks and the Western uh, mortgage, these companies, they're, they're not going to do as well. And people are on to that. And so when the banks reported yesterday, we saw them sell off slightly. Amazon's going to 52-week highs. Now, that's all fine and good. But what happened? I mean, well, let's let's put it this way. To me, some of that has to do with the fact that we still have 401ks going in the United States and people are still putting money, they're allocating money into the equity markets. And so where, where are you going to buy? You're going to buy in places like the NASDAQ, like Amazon, places that you think that are going to do well. But what happens when the customers of Amazon start to actually not have money? That is, is that they can't allocate their resources to buying shares. Isn't that a going to be a, a leg down in terms of shares overall, including Amazon? I think it absolutely has to be in that, you know, a, a true bear market never really ends until the winners get absolutely decimated as well. I think there's, there's a couple of elements. First, one of the reasons why we're seeing some of these moves is that liquidity is appalling. Um, so I think, you know, a bit off the, the, the depth of the, um, the e-mini futures, the S&P futures market, was something like 150 contracts per tick. It's now down to around about 10 to 25. So it's absolutely been decimated. If you actually look at the volumes on queues, on spiders, on the um, on the futures as well, on the rally, they've been falling and falling and falling. So this is a very low volume rally compared to the volumes in the sell-off. So it's an atrocious rally. And the other thing with, with to think about with Amazon is, some people say, well, Amazon is justified being up here because um, it's taking market share, which is true. But what we're looking at there is a sort of analysis that you might apply when you've got a, a, a kind of momentum, you've got a trend in place, it's been there for two or three years, things are sort of mean reverting, you have your winners and losers. This is an environment where there will be a point where the people who own Amazon, you look at their cash flow, that's me, you, pensions, all the rest of it. We look at our own cash flow and we go, oh my God, I've lost loads of money in that asset, in that asset. My pension's not paying me enough. Where can I get my money from? That stock's done pretty well. I'm going to sell it. And it's a difference between Amazon performing well as a stock and taking market share versus my balance sheet, my personal balance sheet performance, and whether I need to take money from those winners. And that's where Amazon will eventually become vulnerable. And that's what I think will happen in the next leg. But I think it will be a slow realization leg over the next few months as these numbers on the real economy don't pick back up in this way that many people think they're going to. Well, you know, that's sort of a, a negative scenario. But, I, you know, as I've told you in the past, I've, I've been told we should have some positive notes to end this on. And I, 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 I saw in the comments, I told you this before, that someone was saying that they've been looking at your videos and that right behind you, all of those squares are, are empty. They, they, uh, they have this sense that you are enjoying uh, your, 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 your lockdown experience. I just I thought you should know that, that that's a good thing, in fact. It's a good thing. Well, is it that I'm enjoying it or is it that I'm, I'm there? <laughs> After I do these, I go into a darkened room at the back and take a couple of bottles with me, turn the lights out and put on the doors and the smiths and be happy.
<laughs> oh, that's good. The Smiths, I do like that. That is very good. We, I, I'll have to put them on when I when I have my uh, my red wine tonight. Roger, always yeah. a pleasure. Always uh, good. And uh, we'll, we'll, I'll see you again next week. Will do. Thanks very much. Catch you later. Have a good one. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.